Hey everyone, how's it going? Uh, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are beginning our summer guest series. We had some scheduled flip arounds, but here we are with the summer guest series. Remember that this series will be bi-weekly on a variety of topics and we'll have other type of interactive things to do on Instagram throughout the summer on the off weeks. And we'll have one specific week that we'll announce later on. That will be particularly special, I think. Lots of great topics, lots of great guests. And today we're going to begin with one special guest, Josh Hoffman, on the topic of pragmatism. And Josh Hoffman is actually a buddy of mine who's local. So this is the second local person I've had on the show, which is kind of a funny thing. Um, so, Josh, would you mind introducing yourself? Absolutely, Nick. Thanks for thanks for having me. Um, I'm so thankful that uh, my wife knew a friend of yours and introduced us. It's been... It's been a, uh, almost a year now. I think, I think so. Yeah. Um, a, a fellow uh, theology nerd and, and someone who's passionate about the word. Uh, so I'm thankful for you and uh, your ministry. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm right here in Bernie. Uh, husband, Kristen, um, three kids, eight, six, and a four-month-old. Grew up in Ohio. Um Lived in uh, Los Angeles after that for almost a decade before ending up here in the beautiful Texas Hill Country by the grace of God. Um, <clears throat> really grew up in church. Uh, went to church, Cortland Trinity Baptist, where my great uncle was the pastor. Um, thankful for the influence, uh, godly influence of my family and their prayers over the course of all these years. Um, but I really started taking an interest, I'd say, in apologetics probably about 15 years ago in my early 20s read a lot of the classical arguments for the existence of God, kind of went to, you know, Lee Strobel books and Dr. Craig. Um, and really I was using that information to witness to people that I was working with, um, answer some of their difficult questions and, and kind of refute some of their, their wrong thinking. However, I really didn't absorb much of what, uh, what I was saying to them and let that information really transform my own heart. Uh, at that time, I think my primary reason and concern was defending what I thought was right and wanting to be right. So I was able to give answers to people. Um, but I, I really didn't realize that while that was important, the relationship with that person was equally as important. And even more so, the testimony of how I was living, uh, did my life look any different than, than theirs did? Um, fast forward a few years, I'm here in Texas, uh, and really, I'd kind of wrestled back. I know a lot of people feel the call into full-time ministry um, immediately. Mine was more of a, a continual drip where I, I kind of wrestled with God. I, I wanted to do 50. Can we do this 50, 50, 75, 25, 90, 10? And, and it wasn't really until I, I just said, all right, I'm going to give you everything. And I, I felt him calling me into ministry for, for years, but I said, surely there's got to be something else, God, you, you can use me for. And I, I knew that when I finally submitted and surrendered to his will for my life unconditionally um, that I needed to ground myself in the word. So that led to jumping back in school, um, bachelor's in uh, religion, biblical studies and theology, and then we'll continue to um, my education with a, with a master's in theology. And then hopefully time and Lord willing, uh, we'll work uh, into a doctorate as well um, if if I'm fortunate enough. But um, that's that pretty much brings us to where we are today. Uh, I think originally I was I wanted to get into apologetics uh, to to enter difficult and hostile environments to answer people's tough questions, 
And over the last year or two, the Lord's really given me a shepherd's heart. Uh, my real desire now is to see people come to maturity in their faith, faith in Christ and, and what that walk looks like um, together uh, on a day-by-day basis. So um, he's really kind of shifted my direction from a, an apologetic uh, stance in, in skeptical environments to really a, a local um, commitment to to people uh, in and around our neighborhoods um, to see them grow in their faith. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you said a lot of things that I think, uh, well, I know I can relate to and, and others can relate to where you, you get into this kind of this theological angle so hard that you're, you're studying for the sake of uh, proving your point kind of thing, and then you never apply the theology, and then you just end up in this kind of like empty hole of knowledge, and it's, it's no bueno. Um, yeah, and so for listeners, if you remember Kristen Carden, she was on. Uh, Kristen's actually uh, Josh's wife's friend, Kristen, and that's how we met. We met through Kristen, so a little connection on the podcast there. Um, right. yeah. So, so today we're going to be talking about pragmatism. Uh, it's an important subject and I think it affects a lot of things. I think you would agree to that. Um, Absolutely. So I guess first things first, how would you define the pragmatism? Well, Nick, I, I think it's important to distinguish between pragmatism as a philosophy and pragmatism in the context of the church. Uh, Generally speaking, the former refers to uh, the definition of truth. Um, Pragmatism defines truth as a set of beliefs that really works for a particular person or group uh, as they try to cope with reality or are trying to accomplish a task. Um, Without really getting too deep, simply put, truth is determined by consequences. Um, Whether something is right or wrong is is dependent on results. Um, Now, immediately we should be able to see uh, the problem with defining truth this way, for example, uh, you and I both have kids, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine that your child's afraid of the dark and creates this uh, imaginary friend who sleeps in their room uh, to keep monsters away. Now, even though we know that this imaginary friend is fictional, that belief helps our child deal with their fear of the darkness. So here we have really an identified uh, a fictional belief that's helpful. It works. And as such, it should according to the pragmatist, be considered true. Hmm. However, despite the utility of our kids' belief, we we clearly know that their belief in imaginary friend is false, and so we can easily recognize that just because a belief is helpful or useful doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. Right. Right? Um, In the context of the church, I would say it refers to the, the philosophy that churches should do whatever works in order to grow. Um, this is what James Boyce would refer to as the contemporary evangelical church really doing God's work in the world's way. Uh, and it works, right? They'll, they'll show up in droves. Um, why does it work? What is the purpose of gathering on the Lord's Day? Is evangelism really the only thing that matters? I think these are important questions um, that we need to look at uh, as, as, we, as we discuss pragmatism and how, how it relates to, to the church. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, in terms of that, in terms of, uh, how it affects the church and the, the different, um, I guess how, how would, you, how should we view pragmatism in ministry and the church to begin with? What's the foundational view? How, should we accept some of it? Should we, um, reject all of it? Uh, 
What do you think in that regard? Well, well, I think it's nuanced. And first, as as with any topic, really, we should look at what the Bible has to say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, we need to pause long enough uh, to really look at the, the consequences of the systems that we're putting in place and ask questions like, is this consistent with Scripture? Yeah. Will it cause us to grow spiritually? Does it strengthen the body or leave it weaker and more susceptible to attacks from the enemy or false teachers? Things like that. Um just because we can do something doesn't necessarily mean that we should, right? Right. We see this in ongoing ethical debates in the medical field. I, I remember a few years ago, I wrote a paper on um, the inherent danger of getting so preoccupied with whether we can do something that we don't often pause long enough to contemplate whether we should. Now, this paper was looking at the rapid advancement of technology in the field of genetic engineering as it relates to the possibility of designer babies, but I believe the same caution would apply um, in the church. Um, And I I don't doubt that we all want to see growth in the body of Christ, as we should, because that means more people are being saved. But I do really think it's imperative as Christians to look at the strategies that we're implementing in order to grow to ensure that they're faithful to God's design and His purpose for His church. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, with that said, what do you think are some of the the predominant strategies that are being used that shouldn't be used? Well, you know, it's, um, I, I think it's easy to, to look at, um, pragmatism in, in the church in terms of a problem. Mm. Um, it's easy to automatically assume that this is something that's endemic to contemporary Christianity in America and especially, um, in the mega church. Um, however, I really think too, it's, it's unfair to label this just as a problem that's strictly confined to mega church or the big churches. I think really we're, we're all tempted to modify methods for the masses with the hopes that we, we can gain a, a larger audience. And again, I'll go back to Boyce's comment of the church doing the Lord's work in the world's way. Um, it works. And this has a, a lot to do with our, our, our meaning American definition of success that has found its way into the church. We equate um, a bigger crowd, and I say crowd versus congregation purposefully, there's a difference between anybody can draw a crowd. Um, I spent, as I just indicated, almost a, a decade in Los Angeles um, in special events. You create a buzz in the form of something attractional that appeals to people. There's this primarily done uh, there through the public's infatuation with celebrity. That's no different, I don't think, in rural uh, America. Um, that's the infatuation with reality TV and gossip magazines and things like that. But in the church, we've done the same thing through really a light or watered down version of the gospel that seems to focus on meeting felt needs and how to be free from guilt, how to have better behaved kids, how to find purpose and meaning in your life. So really we, we emphasize the unconditional love of God, his wonderful plan for, for your life. We minimize sin we minimize our fallen nature. We don't talk about the wrath of God and our need to repent. Uh, it's what R.C. Sproul uh, used to say, a, a God who's all love and all grace and all mercy, and there's no sovereignty or justice or holiness or wrath is is not the God of the Bible. He's, he's an idol, right? Right. So I think the reason that it's been utilized in the church today is because it works now better than ever for, for a few reasons. Um those are, and I think you would agree, um, and if you if there's anything that I leave out or you feel 
um, you want to add to, please jump in. But I would say biblical illiteracy, Mm. um, immaturity, an overwhelming influence of culture, um, this expressive individualism that we see. This was a term that was used by Robert Bella and Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity. Basically, it assumes that humans are inherently good. Um, all forms of external authority are rejected. Personal authenticity is just lauded. Um, the primary social ethic is tolerance for everyone's quest for individual freedom and self-expression, really. And, and this manifests itself in, in popular cultural narratives that today people just assume are true. And these are like, just just be yourself. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. And we've taken these and we've adopted them in contemporary Christianity. Then the last one I would say is kind of tied to all of those, and it's it's really consumerism, right? Yeah, um, that's right. To, this, this consumer mindset really has uh, invaded Christianity. Um, I think it was John Wesley uh, who who concluded that uh, what one generation tolerates, the next will embrace, and and here we are. Um, I think we're we're truly worried that if we don't remove some of the difficult doctrines that rub people the wrong way, that people won't trust in Christ, right? Right. So what do we end up doing? We end up catering um, and tailoring our Sunday worship service for the unbeliever. I mean, we see that in, um, I've heard some quotes from popular preachers. One that comes to mind is Stephen Furtick from Elevation that I can't remember the quote exactly, but... Uh, he said something like, if, if you're a believer or were last week, then this church is no longer for you. Hmm. Um, it, it's so, so yeah. basically if people don't like a long service, we'll make it shorter. If you don't like formal dress, hat and sneakers is good. Too boring. We'll get pop music and a movie presentation. Um, I, I think at the heart of it, really the truth of the gospel should rub those who are dead in their trespasses and sins the wrong way, right? right. It it should be offensive. Um, I think really uh, it's what I've heard John MacArthur refer to as as Christianity light. <laughs> it's it's for consumers. Uh, it waters down and really misinterprets the biblical gospel in attempt to to make it more popular. Um, it's focused on felt needs. It's really similar to think to the the seeker-sensitive uh, model that we used to hear about. Uh, it's, I don't think it's as popular now, um, but really just basically what it says is if we scratch people where they itch and we gain their trust, then they'll be more open to hearing the gospel. But we know that the only problem with this is they never actually get to the gospel. You go back week in and week out, and they're still talking about how to live your your best life now. Uh, no pun or cheap shot intended there. Yeah. Um, so really, I think it's it's a gospel that's designed by men um, and not by God, and therefore it's worthless. And what's worse is that we have undiscerning people sitting in pews or chairs across America who hear this and think that they're hearing the gospel and think they've been rescued from eternal judgment when really they've just been deceived, right? Absolutely. So the true gospel calls you to deny yourself, um, and, and that kind of contradicts this self-esteem gospel that we hear, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts uh, to that. I think you hit the nail, you know, on the head in several regards. And 
uh, some some of the things that come to mind is, you know, like you said, biblical illiteracy is easily a foundational aspect because, you know, trying to water down the gospel obviously makes you miss the mark. You strip Christianity of what it is to do that. Um, and, of course, then you get into the issue of ecclesiology. Well, what is the church for? Well, it's for the believer. And so then you get into the issues about that. Um, and I was thinking about, uh, you know, instant gratification. We, we want results now. We want moralistic results now. We want to have all that, um, you know, our, our life improvement here and now. And so if it doesn't feel right, then, you know, we'll abandon it, stuff like that. Uh, you said something else, too, about um, that made me think of a quote that, what you win people with is what you win people to. And so as soon as you change that, they'll abandon it. If you win people with, you know, with the lights and the shows and you change that to, you know, a more subtle um, environment, then they're going, well, that's not why I'm here and they'll leave. So I think you, I think you address a lot of pitfalls that come out of that. Um, Do you have any additional thoughts after? Yeah. You know, really it's, you just touched on it too, is we want instant gratification. I mean, this is, this is why the prosperity gospel is, is so appealing, right? Absolutely. Um, it's because we take the glorious promises that are ours in Christ, um, in the age to come. And, and we, we, we try to bring them down, um, and, and attach them to, to the here and now when that just, it, it, that totally flies in the face of the normalcy of suffering that we see throughout the new testament right yeah um and we i I look and i'm always reminded of of uh paul's writing in in second timothy when he when he points out that that people are they're going to become lovers of self lovers of money proud arrogant um lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god um and i I think that's that's where we're at that, that people have the appearance of god but denying its power and all the while they're saying they're claiming this power that is is not theirs. It's 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 theirs in Christ, but they forget that that part too. Yeah. Um, so you're right. We what you win people with, you have to keep them with. And I I think that's the there's such a danger, and I just see it's just this futility of of trying to win people. And the, you know the the new apostolic reformation and the hyper charismatic movement that are always focused on signs and wonders. But they never talk about what those signs and wonders originally were meant and who they pointed to. Right. So, so they're really missing out um, on on the most uh, spectacular, miraculous, and that's that's in the person and work of Christ. Yeah, it's almost like uh, kind of chasing spiritual highs instead of you know going to the everlasting well. Essentially, you, you want to go from one thing to the next instead of abiding and remaining. And you're just kind of seeking, you're continuously seeking. There's no rest in that. Um, I don't know if that's an appropriate way to put it, but that's kind of the first thing that came to mind. Um, no, absolutely. I think that's an accurate uh, representation. Um, and, and who who are most likely to, to be susceptible to that? Who's your ideal consumer? It's people that, are, that really don't know who they are yet, or yeah. at least don't know who they are in Christ. So they're, it's easier to sell... Uh, we'll use the example of a child or a young kid, something than it is an older, mature adult, right? Like it, me at 17 years old, I, you tickle my fancy and I'm going to buy anything. My dad's going to say, no, I'm probably going to, we need to look at this. Do you really need this? So we're appealing to the, the younger culture 
Um, and, you know, we'll talk about, I think, more of that later. But um, one of the books that I'm just finishing now uh, by Thomas Bergler, the, the juvenilization of uh, American Christianity has been eye opening for me. And it, it speaks um, at length to to these these issues. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you raise a great point about, you know, uh, the kind of measuring, because, I mean, that's what we were instructed to do when it comes to discipleship. We were supposed to weigh and measure the cost, right? And that that was a stressing point for Jesus. And so whenever you start just like, oh, yeah, come in, make a decision, you're calling them to a higher standard of living that if they don't have the true gospel, if they're not regenerate, then they can't live up to that standard. And so you're almost making them worse off. And then not only that, but... Uh, false converts are some of the most difficult people to talk to, especially whenever they think that is Christianity. Um, talking to ex-Jehovah's Witnesses is very interesting because um, a lot of times they leave you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and they think, well, that's Christianity. That's what it actually is. Mm-hmm. And so then you end up in this whole issue where you have to almost deconstruct their their preconceived notions of what Christianity is because of their system. And I think that happens as well in, in these other uh, branches of um, well, I guess that's the branch of thought. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think one of the, the dangers is we really don't ever look at the, the logical outworking of, of what we're doing. Um, I remember I was reading an article probably a month, month and a half ago that uh, Challies wrote on um, pragmatism. And he, 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 he used this hypothetical case study where he took two churches, both had about 250 people. And they had an opportunity to have a popular female minister uh, preach at the church in a few weeks. Um, the The first decided they were going to do it. They they took their their bu- good portion of their advertising budget for the year. They advertised for the event. Um, they they hung posters. They talked to people at, at work. Prayed about it. Um, and as as the day approached, they, everybody was excited. Service went off without a hitch. An evangelical message was was shared, um, packed hundreds of people. Uh, Twenty five people uh, came to to know the Lord that day. And uh, in the aftermath of that, that the, those people that uh, had came to committed, they joined the church, um, and that church experienced a time of growth. the The other church was offered the opportunity. Um, they talked with the, their elders. Um, and while they acknowledged that this could help the church grow, they decided they were going to decline the invitation. Um, several weeks later when the minister would have been there, they had the same 250 people in attendance. Um, the pastor really continued his normal exposition of a a 10 part series he was doing. Um, and nobody really went to the prayer room or or shed a tear. And, um, we have to, he he asked the question, which is right? And he, he warned not to get distracted by the one issue um, or you'll be missing the point. You know, whether you believe that uh, the Bible affirms the issue of women preachers is, is, is wasn't the primary issue. Uh, it, you can replace that with any really uh, issue that, that we, we have that faces the church now. Um, what we need to determine, he, he goes on to say, was, was what church was being the most faithful from our human perspective, we'd see no reason to doubt that the first church was because they used an open door, right? Um, they took a step of faith, and we saw that God God richly blessed that through 25 people coming to know Him. Um, what would God say, though? 
I think if we look at Scripture, God, above anything else, desires what? Obedience. More than sacrifice, more than results, God wants obedience. And by studying Scripture, we can learn that in eternity, uh, God will tell the second church that they were the ones that did his will. That results simply can't excuse disobedience. Now, I think it's important to note that God may choose to use our disobedience to further his purposes, but this shouldn't give us license to ignore the clear teaching uh, of of the word. Evidently, the first church was was the pragmatic one. They they foresaw wonderful results, but ignored the Bible. Wow. Um, so I think that the results, no matter how wild, can't make up for disobedience. Yeah, you you said something there that that you know uh, that made me want to supplement it with. I think of Romans six, where um, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? The, the same concept essentially. Well, you know, good comes from this. You know, grace abounds because of sin because God is gracious. And the answer is obviously no, because that's not that's not the way you're supposed to be thinking about this. You know, it's God is merciful, but you don't you don't assume His mercy, you don't assume His grace in that way. And I think that's almost applicable here, where yeah, you learned a valuable lesson from sinning, but that doesn't mean you go sin again to learn another valuable lesson, kind of thing. You know, um, that's right. And so I think that that's a. I mean, whenever I was thinking about it, my impulse was, oh yeah, that first church had results. And I think that's something that we all kind of naturally think about because that is kind of what our culture is all about. Um, it's kind of the whole, you know, Rick Warren uh, purpose-driven church where um, the old adage is if, if we just win one person um, to Christ, but that, and, and I think we'll touch on this here shortly, um, but what what does that look like? Who Who is who's growing the church? Yeah. Is it us or God? Right. And and the difference between someone who's genuinely saved and regenerate versus someone who maybe professes faith um, but is is self deceived because they've never biblically responded to the gospel. Um, there's been there's there's been no miracle. There's been no new heart. They haven't been born again. Um, so I think on the surface it's real easy to say, well, you know, as as long as the uh, the end result is good, then, then that justifies whatever means that we use. And I think that's a dangerous way to go about um, uh, ministry. Absolutely. Um, so, so we have talked a little bit about um, why we think the church has utilized pragmatism. Do you have anything to add to that before we move on? No, I think, I think that's, uh, I just really, at the end of the day, I think it's uh, because it works. Right. They've we equate success with with numbers, and um, some people equate that with with finances. Um, you can the rationalization that you can do more with with much, um, and I, I think again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it it's um, you you really you need to be faithful to uh, what God um, wants and what He uh, prescribes and what his plan for the church is. Um, now that doesn't mean we can't, can't utilize, uh, different church growth strategies, but they have to be, um, according to his plan and not, not secular tools that we can use to get people in. I'm reminded when I first moved back here, there was a church and I'll leave it unnamed. Um, but they wanted me to, to take a position. Um, and I looked at the church, uh, and I mean, they were, they were having like movie sets 
every Sunday hmm. um, with popcorn and, and, and people dressing up in characters and stuff. And, and this was to this was to get people in the door, whether yeah. they heard the gospel or not. Uh, I mean, it, it was more of that felt needs, um, self-help message and, and really you could fill that place. I mean, quick, um, people go to popular movies all the time. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a difference between that and, and God's church. It's, it's his church. It's not mine. Yeah. And then, and that kind of circles back to, well, what exactly is working? What exactly is the su- success? As you said, it could be filling seats or it could be money. But that doesn't mean that doesn't necessarily mean that the success is of eternal value. It's not actually so soteriology occurring before your eyes. It's it's you fill the you fill some seats. You got more people to come to your church. That's essentially what. Um, so even even then, the whole premise of well, what works is kind of subjective in terms of well, what exactly is it working to? What what is the end game here? Yeah, and it's 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 one of those one of those issues too, where it's like. I can give someone uh, some food or a, a cup of cold water, um, but ultimately, in, in the bigger picture, in the eternal perspective, does it do does it do me any good to save someone from the hell that they're experiencing here on earth and not share and neglect to share the gospel with them and damn them to hell for all of eternity? Which is more important? Right. Now, I guarantee that the if you tell people what they want to hear, everything's probably going to go okay. But that the people that always told me the things that I wanted to hear really didn't care about me. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't care if what my life looked like, um, what happened to me in five or 10 years, but the people that truly love you and truly care about you might say things that, that, that stir you up and that you might cause you to be offended at first, but might be the very thing and probably are the very thing that you needed to hear. That's the most loving. Yeah. Even even if it stings, right? I mean, we, I mean, everyone knows, like, well, I mean, uh, marriage is a is a highway to sanctification, and it's not usually the fun road, but it but it, it sanctifies because you hear things that sting, but they they help you grow, and that's just one of those things, you know. It never feels good to be pruned in that way either. Absolutely. I think it was Malcolm Muggridge. I remember he, he said that he'd learned more in his 75 years um, through suffering and hardship than he ever learned through blessing. Yeah. Um, C.S. Lewis, I think, would would say something like uh, if God whispers to us in, in our pleasures and he he shouts um, to us uh, through our suffering, um, it's his megaphone to to rouse a deaf world. Yeah, that kind of reminds me. I think it was a Calvin quote where he says something like, um, "Faith is not, you know, leaning and blessing God in your in your prosperity, but blessing and leaning on God in your suffering." You know. Yeah, that's right. Um, I probably misquoted that, but it was something like that. I've heard it both ways. Um, so, <laughs> so we talked a little bit about the effects of pragmatism. Um, is there any additional thoughts you have on on that particular issue here? Yeah. Yeah, you know, Nick, I, I think it's really, I mean, in order to understand the effects that pragmatism's had on the church, I think it's important to look at how we got to this point. Um, in an article that I read, uh, Nine Marks, I think it was Jonathan Lehman, asked the question, um, is there something endemic, not just to megachurches, but to post-1950s evangelicalism mm-hmm. as a whole that over time tends to undermine 
the, the very doc, doctrinal convictions which make us evangelicals? Do our doctrinal beliefs tend to lean in a pragmatic direction? Into that, I would say, yes, they absolutely do. Well, how? I, I think we've, we've taken something that is important and made it the most salient aspect of ministry, and that was evangelism. We desperately want to reach the lost and let that end justify any means. So essentially, anything that couldn't be directly attributed to the gospel was considered secondary, which included church programs, methodology, uh, and as such, we've really defaulted to, to what works or, or a, a pragmatic approach. And, and by doing so, we've, we've compromised the gospel. Um, as we, you know, we just talked about uh, that case study, uh, God may choose to use our disobedience to further his purposes, but this doesn't give us the license to ignore um, the clear teaching of, of the word. Um, I think the effects of pragmatism on the church today have largely stemmed from unquestioned assumptions, which resulted in unintended consequences. Mm. The consequences are many, and, and I think they've left the church weaker and more susceptible to false versions of Christianity. Uh, I know we talk a lot about orthodoxy and uh, how many of the so-called Christian movements, be it a word of faith, the prosperity movement, the new apostolic reformation movement, you name it. Essentially, what these movements have done is they appeal to undiscerning, highly impulsive people who are searching for a, a real sense of identity to soothe some sort of emotional pain and who desperately crave the approval of others. And they do this by telling them what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. They appeal to their emotional sensitivities, like you pointed out earlier, and, and they assure them of salvation without any talk of sin, without any talk of repentance. I mean, how can you present someone with their need for a savior if you're just telling them how great they are? Yeah. Uh, sadly, I, I think that the biggest effect um, and the, the progenitors of this don't seem to see is that we're leading people to think they're saved when they've never biblically responded to the gospel. I'd ask them, what, what are they, they saved from? Uh, another aspect, and I think you'd agree with this, I know we've talked about this before, another aspect of the church that's been affected is preaching. Mm. Expository preaching has been really discarded and replaced with performances. It, it looks much more like a, a presentation or a, uh, something you would see when, when I was out at, in, in Los Angeles um, that's full of dramatic stories or jokes. Um, Reverence has kind of been thrown out uh, by a, a happier, exuberant disposition, yeah. um, which is really why I think it's important that we're connected to a local church that preaches the word and is concerned with God and his glory first instead of us and our need. Um, the latter is addressed in the former, but it only makes sense with a proper understanding of who God is and who we are. The problem is I don't we don't know who we are. Uh in that book that I just mentioned, The Juvenilization of American Christianity, Thomas Bergler talks about this really, he called it a quiet revolution. Uh, it was led by the teenagers that started to take place in the 30s and 40s in the life of the American church that um, kind of led to this process where the religious beliefs, practices, the developmental characteristics of adolescence became accepted for inappropriate for Christians of, of every age. Um, it began with the goal of uh, appealing to young people, but 
so often it just ended badly with young people and old people embracing this immature version of faith. Um, I, I think you would agree and we see it time and time again, but far too many ministries today they pander to the consumerism and, and self-centeredness uh, and really the immaturity of American believers. Um, the, the church looks much more like culture um, than culture is influenced by the church. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have I mean, I, several thoughts that just like connect to that whenever you're talking about, you know, appealing to the youth. And then we wonder why all the youth has left the church um, is because, well, they, they didn't ever have the message and you know there are cases where you know you see some apostasy but i think the majority where i don't know about you but i've seen a lot of youth you know a lot of youth groups and how they look and uh, i remember going to a couple whenever i was an atheist i remember looking at them from that perspective saying what what is this it's a game room there's nothing happening here and, and they ha- have a little concert in the back and there was emotions and all these things and pizza probably pizza oh pizza video games <laughs> everything uh, and this is, and what was amazing about it is that this is in a rural area. You know, this isn't urban. This is in the middle of like almost out there in Bandera. And I'm just thinking like, what, this isn't Christianity. And as an atheist, I can recognize that. And that's, that's kind of sad. Um, and that's just one of those things where whenever the, those kids leave the, the church, we were too busy trying to appeal to them to bring them in that we didn't think about discipling them. And I think that kind of goes into what you're saying about where the focus of the church has become so focused on the unbeliever that we miss that the church is about the believer and that it's about discipleship. It's about building up the church. And then evangelism is a product of that. I, I don't think you said that, but that's kind of the way I've always perceived it in that regard. So I, I think that, I think you said a lot of things that really could go into a lot of excellent discussion, but if you have any additional thoughts on that, feel free to. No, I think that, you know, that leads into really what is, um, what does that look like? What, what is the biblical approach? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Um, and I, I know we've said a lot uh, with respect to the dangers and really the negative effects that pragmatism's had in the church, um, which is good. But what's the alternative, right? Right. It doesn't do much good if we just give rag on something without offering um, alternatives. And thankfully, the Bible doesn't leave us guessing. Church growth done right consists of the church being totally committed to holiness. Mm. Who grows the church? The Lord does. You look at Acts. In chapter 2, after the Spirit comes, Peter's preaching and uh, exhorting the people to save themselves from the crooked generation. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 2, 41. Yeah. And what did the believers, the church, do? Well, we look to verse 42. They devoted themselves to, like you just said, it's more than evangelism. While it is evangelism, while that happens, it should be a, a natural or supernatural overflow of the work of, of, of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers and in the fellowship. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. This is what makes up a biblical church. It's the body of Christ gathered. Um, and what happens? What happens next? We look in Acts, it all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. In verse, in verse 47 says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Mm. Now we, we move forward, Acts 3, Peter and John heal a man who was lame from birth. So the people were again filled with wonder and amazement. 
Uh, we know they were later arrested for teaching and proclaiming Jesus raised from the dead. But in chapter four, many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number came to about 5,000. I mean, so talk about church growth. I remember when I was studying uh, the course in Acts, uh, and we did thematic analysis of three sections of Acts. And one of the one of the things I learned, one of the miracles in Acts is that the church grows through persecution. It mm. grows through persecution, not in spite of it. Yeah. So, so there's this excitement. The Lord's adding to his church, and it's growing quickly. And what happens next? Ananias and his wife Sapphira, who were in the church, sold a piece of property and kept it back. We all know the story. Um, and Peter calls them out for lying to the Holy Spirit. And what happens? Ananias drops dead in front of the whole church. Who killed him? God did, right? Mm-hmm. And what happened next? In verse 5, it says, And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Yeah. His wife comes in, she follows up, and she's given the opportunity to tell the truth, and she lies, and immediately she falls dead. And what happens? It says, Great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. So the church is in its infancy, and what God, what does God do? And why does he do it? Uh, he kills two people. Is he trying to prevent the church from growing? This sounds strikingly different from the warm, fuzzy atmosphere that we see in most modern evangelical churches here in America. Um, but why does he kill two people? It, it, we see the answer at verse 13. It says, none of the rest dare join them, but the people held them in high esteem. As the church, we need to be so committed to holiness and righteousness and purity that people, and this is John MacArthur in one of his sermons, says that on their own, people who aren't committed to these things won't join. It's the complete opposite of what we see today, where we hide those things. We, we bury them. We, don't want, we want people to think that we're the, the most accepting, loving, embracing people around. Yeah. Um, if, if we can't or aren't supposed to take these secular tools or a pragmatic approach to ministry— to do this, how on earth are we going to get the church to grow? Ah, look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That's biblical church growth in accordance with God's plan. The Lord adds to the church. That's legitimate growth. Now, I want to say I think that uh, we should we should want people to come and we should use strategies to grow but it's important to recognize that the normal New Testament pattern for growth of outreach and evangelism wasn't through programs or events that we just talked about, as you pointed out, or even primarily through a Sunday gathering. It's through the normal lives of those who had their lives changed and them testifying and sharing the gospel at work, in school, in their neighborhoods. So while I'm absolutely for, you know, social media posts and witnessing people at ball games and grocery stores and uh, putting extra emphasis on Easter and Christmas when we know people that are far from God or don't know him so they can hear the gospel having, you know, parking availability. I, I want to remove any unnecessary obstacle that I could, that could be used as an excuse for not coming as long as I'm not changing God's plan for what he wants his church to be. And I really think that the reverence and the holiness that he calls us to as we worship him is really important. And I feel like that gets so often gets neglected 
in lieu of a pragmatic approach or what can we do to just get people in? Yeah. I mean, I, I think about, I mean, again, you raise a lot of points that, um, thinking about church history, right? You mentioned, you know, persecution, obviously we see persecution in the, uh, underneath Rome and the church is flourishing. People are being martyred and it's growing and that's not appealing to, to, you know, pragmatic. That's not the way, you know, you know, we should really have someone martyred today. So have some, have some church growth. That's not, it's always contrary to what we would expect. And then we see the, the revival, you know, with Jonathan Edwards, who was kind of known for being really hard in his preaching and who's known for also being monotone. He didn't use any special tricks, and yet you see all this growth happening in the revival. So I think there's a lot of a lot to say to that regard as well whenever we look at history. And then I think about what you were saying about holiness. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of texts in the New Testament are very uncomfortable for, for us whenever we think about holiness. But I thought of uh, 1 Corinthians... Um, First Corinthians five, I believe, five nine through ten talks about uh, you know putting people away, putting people outside of the church who are sexually immoral or greedy or idolatry or drunkard or swindler. We don't think that that's necessary at all anymore. Church discipline's kind of gone out the the window. And then we talk about uh, again, Paul in another section of the text says, you know, um, there's divisions among you doctrinally, so that you can know who's of God and who's not. And that's something that just kind of like escapes our mind because we do live in this like postmodern, you know, theologically postmodern pragmatic world now. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. You're faithful to scripture and God will add to it. You don't need to worry about the bells and whistle. And whenever it comes to people who leave, I mean, if they leave, then then they were never of us. Right. First John. Um, so I think there's a lot of avenues we can really go down if you wanted to expand on that. Um, did you have any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, one thing that stands out is, um, and you you brought it up, is um, church discipline. I mean, do you you ever really see Matthew eighteen, you know, fifteen through twenty lived out? Uh, um, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained your brother. If not, you know, take one or two with you. Um, if he refuses, tell it to the whole church. And if he refuses to listen to them, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Um, I mean, do we see that model? And obviously, I think most of the time it doesn't get to the two or three or to taking it in front of the church. But are we so committed to tolerance and we've redefined tolerance to mean agreeing um, that we can't imagine confronting a brother or sister about a sin issue in their life because we're afraid that it'll ruffle their feathers. Yeah. And if that's the case, I've found that every single time that, that I, I'm, I've been hesitant to, to talk, obviously this is done through relationship, right? I mean, you, we can't go lobbing rocks at people on social media or usually this, this is done through relationship, but it, it's always, I always make it about myself if I don't want to, if I'm uncomfortable going to share when really, if I loved someone just the same way as if I had a, a relative who was struggling with addiction, mm. would I tell them what they want to hear, what's going to make them happy, which would be, yeah, sure. It's fine. It's, it's not, it's not that big a deal. It's not going to kill you. Probably. Um, it's what makes you happy. So go do it. No, I I'd probably tell them, Hey, what you're doing is, is, is not only, bad for you, but it's contrary to what God has for you and what he's designed you for. So how can you find purpose and meaning outside of the reason which you were created, right? Yeah. 
and but we don't we don't see we don't see Matthew 18 15 to 20 lived out absolutely um, we, we we don't that church discipline almost doesn't exist yeah i i honestly think of it like um every aspect of you know that text is taboo in some shape go tell your brother uh well you know judge not is what what, what it really says right you're not supposed to judge so you can't really do that that's what everybody hears you're right exactly and then and then it goes to well you know if, if he doesn't listen go tell the church well we don't want to gossip so we can't do that you know so there's always these biblical alleged biblical justifications for avoiding what the bible tells us to do uh, in order to make us feel more comfortable, because we don't want that conflict, we don't want that. Uh, but like you said, if if you're doing it from the right motive, it's out of love, and you, know, you see that extra, you know, you see that uh, command in James, you know, bring them back to repentance, because that's more important than how you know how everyone's feeling in the situation. There's eternal matters, really, and I think that I mean, there, there's really just so much you can go on with that discussion, really. Oh, absolutely. We, we could have we could have multiple hour long conversations <laughs> on any one of those. It's, but it's so true. I mean, um, God uses us uh, for His purposes, and that's why He says, you know, if if you go after your brother who's sinning and, and you save him and bring him back, you've saved him from a multitude yeah. of sins. I mean, um, if we really love people and care about them the way that we should. Um, that, that, of course, assumes that we have a relationship with them first, um, but it, it, we're going to have to have some, some difficult uh, conversations. But for, and I think that really leads into the last thing I really want to say is um, uh, we, we pray for them. We have to be prayerful through all of this, right? Yeah. We talk about church growth, and I think the one, one thing <clears throat> excuse me, the one thing that stands out um, there was an author, an evangelical minister in the late 19th, early 20th century named S.D. Gordon. Um, and I, I've had this quote in my head for years, and it says, uh, we can, and I'm paraphrasing here, we can do more than pray after we have prayed, but not until, mm. right? Yeah. Um, so when it comes to the church growing and God opening the eyes of the blind and raising to life those who are perishing, our first strategy of growth has to be prayer. We need to recognize that all the tactics and programs and events can't raise sinners to life. Only God can do that. Yeah. Um, that's why uh, I think it's so important to realize that, I mean, if if I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, and, and I don't, naturally we know that no one seeks after God. We know that God's the only person that raises people to life. Um, I, I remember in one of the, the early uh, classes I took. It was an evangelism and Christian life course. Uh, and they used these two examples of, of uh, this two men going out to cut down trees. One was old and one was young. Young guy went out blazing and he, he cut down, I think, 20 trees in the first day. And the, the, the old guy cut down uh, 10. And the next day, the young guy, he cut down, I think, five less trees. And the old guy cut down 10. And young guy, five more, uh, reduced from, from his original number. And, and so every day he, he kept going down and what he could do. And the old guy just, you know, he stayed steady. He cut down the same amount of trees. And at the end of the week, he had cut down more trees than the young guy. And the young guy said, well, what did you do different? He said, well, you ran off in the morning and, and, and rushed off to start whacking at a tree. He said, I was sharpening my ax. Hmm. And I think that we, 
we obviously get so busy. I know how busy you are. I know with work and, and, and school and, um, you know, everything else and kids, my goodness, we all get busy. Um, but I, I think that pray, we, we think that we don't have time to pray when that's the first thing that we should do. There was a survey in that course that said that I think the average pastor only prays like seven minutes a day. Hmm. Another said that 80% of the pastors surveyed spent less than 15 minutes a day in prayer. Um, and the most generous survey said that pastors, uh, some of them prayed 37 minutes a day. Um, it also showed that 16% of Protestant ministers across that country were satisfied with, with their personal prayer life. That's a low number. Um, and, uh, you know, they basically all told us the, the same thing. That most pastors, most of us, we, we all probably pray too little. Um, and then we wonder why we're, we're discouraged or burn out or quit. Um, most church growth experts have pointed out that 85% of the churches in America are declining, that only 15% of the churches are actually growing, and that only 1% is through conversion growth. Hmm. And is it not entirely possible that our ineffectiveness in prayer can be traced to our lack of prayer? Um, it, it, it's, it's like we're, we're I think it was... Uh, uh, Martin Luther, yeah. um, you know, he's towers as a giant in church history, um, influential. And he had a particularly uh, busy week. And he said, you know, he'd, he'd mentioned that he generally spent maybe two hours a day in prayer, but this coming week was extra busy. So he said, work, work from, you know, from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I'm going to spend the first three hours of my day in prayer today. Um Prayer allows God to do more in days and hours and minutes or even seconds than we could ever accomplish without him in months or even years worth of work. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really the, the point I would, I would drive home is, is pray not only for growth, for God to open the eyes um, of the blind and, and raise to life those who are dead, um, but to use us and for us to be faithful and to trust him um, and, and not resort to, you know, what, what, what Boyce called, you know, uh, the church doing the, the Lord's work in the world's way. Um, and it, it does work. It, it will lead to people coming through the doors, but have those people have, have their lives been changed? Um, and are we being faithful and obedient to what God calls us to do and what it's his plan for his church? Um, I think those are really important questions that we have to ask. Yeah. I, I man, you you said a lot of just good stuff there, and the the one thought that just keeps coming back is, um, we're talking about the difference between uh, doing things our way and doing things God's way, and prayer is submitting ourselves to God's way, and I think that you know that link between prayer and you know pragmatism is pretty strong. I think that was, I I don't think I could add anything to that. I think you nailed it. Um. So with all that, um, with all this said, I think I think we covered this topic. There, obviously, you and I could talk for for who knows how long. <laughs> yeah. this, this could be like a three week episode. And usually, or we get together. That's exactly what happens. My wife said, I "Remember the first time we met? It's like, oh yeah, Nick and I got together for for breakfast, and uh, what was it? Three or four hours later? <laughs> yeah, time flies. It just disappeared. Yeah, we must have went through a wormhole or something. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
Yeah, so th this was an excellent talk. I think a lot of people are going to be blessed by it for sure. Um, before we close, do you have any last closing thoughts? No, I just want to say, I just want to thank you for for taking the time to to talk about this, for having me on, for your friendship and your ministry and the, your listeners. Um, I pray that they are that they are blessed. Um, that they this might cause people to uh, just stop um, and pause long enough to to not ask if we can do something, but whether or not we should do it. Is yeah. it is it biblical? Is this going to strengthen us? Is it going to cause us to grow spiritually? Um, and then most importantly, everything that we do obviously needs to be motive, motivated out of, out of love. Um, I know we like to think of, uh, first Peter three fifteen as the, the, you know, it's the go-to apologetic verse, but Colossians four five and six is, you know, we, we walk in wisdom towards those outside, um, making the best use of our time. Um, but we, we let our speech um, be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that Paul says, so we know how to answer each person. And I don't think it's a mistake that he says person. We're not answering questions, we're answering people. So um, the first commandment and the second is like it. Um, we love the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our, our, our neighbor as ourself. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that if we genuinely care, and I pray constantly to to care about other people, uh, the way that the Lord does, um, that if we're praying that, um, and we're obedient, that he'll take care of the results. So thanks yeah. for having me, Nick. I sure appreciate it, buddy. No, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Yeah. So that was Josh Hoffman. Like I said, he's a good buddy of mine. I truly appreciate his friendship and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I think it's gonna be edifying. So with that said, we'll see you in a couple weeks and God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful day.